when I stood on the summit, the pride was incredible. As an Irishman with the tricolour in my hand, you know, and all those years of training and all those years of commitment had all come to its fruition. Here it was, standing on the greatest summit on the world. And it was so powerful, it was so emotional, and it was so it was so humbling. It was a different experience to possibly all the other mountains that I've ever stood on. And welcome from wherever in the world you are listening from. My name's Kevin and this is the Hard as Nails podcast, episode number nine, brought to you by Islands Adventure Magazine, Outsider.ie, with the support of Great Outdoors Dublin. Now, since opening its doors in 1976, Great Outdoors uh, have equipped some of the country's greatest adventurers on first ascents and uh, record-breaking attempts on water and on land. And they're there to help you too, no matter how big or small the adventure, the warm and friendly staff at Great Outdoors are always on hand to advise you on the best kit choices out there. I mean, whether you're looking for a waterproof jacket uh, for your commute to work, a camping kit for your next overnight stay in the hills, or gear that will take you up K2, Great Outdoors will always have your back. Now, after listening to this episode, go check out www.greatoutdoors.ie or if you find yourself in and around Dublin, you can simply just visit the store on Chatham Street, just off Grafton Street. Now, if it's the first time you are listening to the Hard as Nails podcast, well, then you are extremely fortunate to be one of the first few people to hear the incredible journey of Donegal adventurer and extreme sport competitor Jason Black, who very recently became only the second Irishman to successfully reach the summit of the world's second highest mountain, K2, and return safely. Now, K2 is known as the Savage Mountain due to the extremely difficult climb to the top, with less than 350 people having ever reached the summit. Also, for every four people that reach the summit, one dies, and Jason knows that from first-hand experience having witnessed one colleague fall to his death and another having a fatal accident on the descent. Let's hear from the man himself now, Jason Black. Jason, thank you for joining us on the Hard as Nails podcast. I've been looking so forward to hearing all about your adventure up and down K2, and I'm sure our listeners are excited to hear all about it as well. Good day, Kevin. Uh, it's great to be on the show. It's lovely to be invited onto the podcast. Brilliant. Well, Jason, uh, before we delve into your amazing story of tackling K2, let's first get a brief background story as to, to how you got into endurance events and challenges in the first place. Were you always a, a sporty type of a person growing up? Yeah, as a young guy growing up, uh, I've always been heavily involved in sport, um, consciously or unconsciously at home. Um, sport was always part of the DNA. Mm-hmm. My father was a, a very keen sports person, uh, heavily involved in martial arts, and I started my sporting um, career, I suppose, um, under his his guidance and his leadership and his motivation. So starting out as a as a, a judo um, competing in judo from seven years of age, uh, that kept itself going for nearly twenty years. And inside that, sport was always involved in our life. Uh, we were. Uh, not keeping fit on the uh, judo mat, we were going for a run or visiting the gym or um, a weekly occurrence to the local swimming pool and that kept itself motivated for a long number of years uh, and then I fell into cycling uh, as a young boy uh, growing up in Donegal, uh, the best day and mode of transport to get to where I needed to get to was by bike mm-hmm. and um, I became a very keen cyclist um, and then 
that led itself into uh, becoming quite a serious uh, amateur cyclist, uh, coming through the junior ranks as a road racer and eventually into the Irish and English um, road racing scene. Mm. Uh, and to, the, to this day, that still stays as my foundation. That's what keeps me really fit and really good shape is the, is the bicycle. Amazing. Now, Jason, not many people will, will know that as a teenager, you, your mother sadly passed away from cancer. And then about 20 years ago, you lost your, your younger brother in, in a motorbike accident. Did these tragic events in your life and some others motivate and inspire you on your way to becoming an incredible extreme adventurer and global endurance athlete? Yeah, I suppose unconsciously again, um, you know, they're, unfortunately I lost my mom at 17 years of age to, mm-hmm. to cancer. And it came at a very, I suppose, a very difficult time for a young boy, 17 years of age. It was, you know, uh, it was a kind of a crossroads in my life where turning left and turning right was an option, you know. And for me, um, you know, it, it destabilized me as a young boy. Uh, I had already come through just previously to that for five years. I'd come through a really bad uh, process of bullying through secondary school. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I was at the hands of a really violent thug. Uh, every day for for five years at college and uh, just as I walked out of college I left there with no education I suppose I didn't really leave with a leaving cert or a junior cert or any of the qualifications Um, not because I was stupid purely because I suppose the thug and the bully destroyed my education and on those final years uh, mum had uh, contracted cancer and Mm. you know like any any good uh, family, especially any Irish family, the mother is always the stability in the home. And uh, losing mum was was incredibly tough, and that aligned with uh, with the bullying. Um, it kind of sent me spiraling down a, a deep dark road. Mm. Um, and for a long number of years, I was quite out of control. And sport really wasn't part of my life. It was uh, it was the furthest thing from it. And mm. you know, I was just I was just reckless with with my life and. I suppose looking back today, you know, I owe my life to sport because um, sport was the one thing that caught me. I suppose it was the one thing that didn't judge me mm. and it allowed Jason Black to be Jason Black. Mm. And at that stage, I was heavily involved in Cubs and Scouts and living in rural Ireland. Um, the great outdoors was my was my salvation, was my rescue, it was my survival kit. And mm. For me, I just took out the anger and frustration and annoyance of being bullied and losing mm. my mum. I couldn't see out. I couldn't see a way forward. And I suppose in reflection, looking back, you know, at 17, 18, I was quite depressed. And I suppose we didn't really know what depression was back then. Mm. It was a taboo that wasn't really talked about in Ireland. And it was always hushed-hushed and brushed under the carpet. But thankfully today it's a... It's a place for men that can talk about it and, and uh, make a difference and there's organisations there to support. But for me, it wasn't. It was a very dark place in my life and even to a point where where I didn't really want to be in this world. I felt that the world would be better without me in it. And the only thing that really saved me was sport. Very interesting. Well, Jason, you are more than just a hardcore mountaineer. I mean, last year you were particularly busy as, I mean, you competed in the race across Italy. You you did Ironman Barcelona. You won and set a new record at the Race Around Island Ultra Challenge. And you even did uh, the race across Texas. So when it comes to these different endurance challenges, specifically the ones involving you on your bicycle, do you consider yourself an all-rounder or are you more specialized at some disciplines than others? Oh, I, I really... Uh, all-rounder is, is where I'm at. Uh, you know, I embrace 
sport full stop. I embrace the challenge of sport full stop. You know, what I really get the biggest buzz out of is the physical ability to do something beyond wherever that is. But more importantly, to really challenge the mind, I suppose, for me. You know, all the sports must have an aspect of mentally challenging me mentally challenged me me beyond belief to a point where the mind really is the driving force and the body really is just following suit. And for me, mm. I think that's the greatest uh, understanding of sport is that the physical ability can be trained on a daily basis. We go to the gym, mm-hmm. we train on the bike, we run in the mountains, we swim in the lakes, we paddle in the lakes. And for me, that's a physical thing, but the big one really is being able to dial in and to be mentally strong enough to endure and go super long, super fast and for a very long period of time and been able to develop that skill, whether it's an Ironman, whether it's an endurance cycling, endurance running as an ultra runner or uh, or even climbing the greatest mountains in the world, um, being able to open incredible doors in your mind that never closes uh, is incredible. And, uh, you know, we've often heard about the mind we're only working off a small percentage of its ability. Well, for me, I think endurance sport mm-hmm. ultimately opens doors that mainstream sport doesn't ever open. Mm. Um, and for me, I tend to give them a color and a taste and a sound and a feel. And it goes with emotion and color and and strength. And uh, at any one time, whenever I'm in a, a dark place again in sport, mm-hmm. uh, during a race, I can go back in, open that door and I can smell it and taste it and feel it mm. and it just drives me on and inspires me to to believe in myself. Yeah. And apart from the cycling, uh, Jason, I mean, you, you have a real ability when it comes to climbing treacherous mountains. I mean, to the point where you summited Mount Kilimanjaro twice in the space of just 22 and a half hours. That was back in uh, 2013. Tell us a bit more about that insane record. That was incredible. I, I wrote to the... Uh, um, I wrote to the Tanzanian government over there in, in Kilimanjaro and asked them for permission to climb the western beach on, on Kilimanjaro. It was a site that hadn't been climbed since 2006 because there was a tragedy there with a with an American team and they gave me permission to climb it. And I signed a waiver at the park uh, entrance and I set off on the western beach um, mountaineering style which means, in essence, that I was traveling fast, but I was traveling fully loaded with all my gear, mm-hmm. um, tent stoves, gas, and food, and everything else that uh, that a that a pure climb would would require, as opposed to a speed climb. Mm-hmm. And I climbed the Western Reach, which was incredible because it took me up through the the, the Western Crater, up through lava towers, and I got to experience the side of the mountain. I suppose that very few get to see uh, because you can't see the crater and crater rim. Um, from the eastern side of the mountain and climbing up through the western uh, breach and around the crater rim and looking back over lava towers and uh, I was just incredible, you know, and up onto the summit. I really didn't know if I could pull it off. I knew it was strong enough. I knew the work done. I had trained really hard mm-hmm. and the self-belief was there, but again, with altitude and coming from living at sea level and not really having an opportunity too much to do much too much altitude training in advance of the climb. I wanted to leave to see if I could do the traverse and the return to the summit once I got to the summit on the first time around. So mm-hmm. thankfully got there and felt really, really strong and dropped down to the natural side of the mountain and turned right around, right back out to the gate, turned right around and went straight back to the summit again, 22 and a half hours. And 
just again, you know, for me it was just uh, another physical challenge and, and mental challenge. It was a challenge of will and ability, and it drew on a lot of a lot of uh, parts of the jigsaw puzzle, you know. And it was incredible to stand there, you know. And uh, you know, I just, you know, for me, I just want to show and encourage that it's it's all possible, and that uh, the people that put the roadblocks in is ourselves. Mm. And um, from there, I drove on and and uh, never stopped believing and never looked back and just just even you know just from last week taking on K mm. two and standing there on that summit, mm. you know, was just another example of that self belief mm. and that dedication to going beyond wherever beyond is. Yeah. Well, Jason, without further ado, let's chat now about K two. 8,611 metres in height, making it the second highest after Everest. But it is considered more difficult because of the extreme weather, uh, avalanches, steep cliffs and even falling rocks. This was your second attempt as an avalanche ended your hopes of reaching the summit back in 2015. Why did it take you three years to have a second crack at it? Well, you're right. You know, 2015, you know, I'd gone there full of aspirations to take on the greatest mountain in the world. K2 and um, you know everything was going well um, weather was nice it was actually too nice that's actually ultimately what did happen but mm-hmm. climbed up as far as Camp 3 um, 7,350 metres and this is eventually after probably 20 days of continuous climbing and pulling gear and getting equipment established and getting each camp established and got to Camp 3 spent the night there uh, had felt a great acclimatisation had worked back down to the Black Pyramid Mm-hmm. Really technical section on K2 and back down to Camp 2 on 6,760 metres. And then eventually just dropped back down into uh, base camp. And thankfully for me, we did uh, on that rotation. Um, the mountain became very unstable um, because the temperatures inc- increased and avalanche became and a daily occurrence, and, and for us, Camp 3 was taken out, um, which I lost all my critical equipment, my camp, my stove, tents, food and everything. Thankfully, we weren't in camp, we were in base camp, but sadly for me, K2 ended that day. And I remember walking out of K2 and getting to Concordia Corner, um, and they always say you should never look back, and I did look back. I felt extremely cheated. I didn't feel I really got a good crack at K2, and Mother Nature played a role. And I respect Mother Nature, mm-hmm. as we have to in the Great Mountains, but she played a role and, and took out the expedition that year and nobody summoned it. Um, and I just, you know, I, I vowed to go back. I vowed it to never, I'd, I'd have another go again. And uh, I left and went home. And I suppose, you know, um, K2 has a financial burden attached to it. Mm-hmm. It's got an emotional uh, burden attached to it. And it's got a huge physical and mental burden attached in and I suppose it took some time for me just to I suppose dial back in again and have a good look at myself and ask the real honest question do I really want to return Mm. knowing the statistics knowing uh, what could happen but um, the way I really explain it um, is that I really had a stone in my shoe for for three four years and uh, it just it kept niggling at me and I kept pushing that stone around my toes but each time I was kind of still limping, and the storm would reoccur again, and it would it would just it would just bring me back to K two each and every time. And I suppose two years ago we uh, I set sail again in my mind, and uh, K two was 
was alive again and um, was was just was recklessly eaten into me. And uh, an expedition leader, um, Gareth Madison, contacted me. I actually was with Gareth in 2015 on the on the walkout, and uh, Gareth says you might return someday. And I says, God, I never know when Kevin. He rang me one day and ignited that flame and since that we spent two years putting an expedition together of initially started out as five members but turned out to be ten members mm. and was back in again this, this summer just passed. Mm. So why did you decide to take on K2 in the first place? I mean I know your answer is probably why not but but what was your main motivation? Well I suppose you know the great outdoors allowed me to grow as a person it allowed me to grow in altitude it allowed me to take on new challenges and set new goals and and they always got bigger and better and stronger and fitter and faster and they required me to be a different person each time and I really embraced that. I loved the aspect of the physical challenge. I loved the aspect of the mental battle and I loved the aspect of the technical growth that was required with each and every endurance race or climb and mm-hmm. the ultimate is where we all want to be and I suppose as a sports person, you know, to stand in the to stand at the Olympics mm-hmm. in mountaineering and, and to be that gladiator in that arena and the greatest arena in the world mm-hmm. was going to be the ultimate for me. And, you know, K2 is that K2 is that pinnacle mountaineering challenge and endurance challenge mm-hmm. um, that draws on everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, you know, I just knew that destiny was with K2. Um, you know, I had taken on Mount Everest in 2013 and, I'd, been, I'd spent several years training in Nepal in preparation for it. I was up through the ice fall and um, I took on Nepal on the north side because I just really enjoyed the fact of the, um, I just really enjoyed the fact of the, the, the fact that there was no safety net mm-hmm. on the north side through China. And that's kind of how I left, loved my life mm-hmm. with the bully and with losing mum and losing my brother Billy, mm-hmm. that there was no safety net and that, that I was kind of, I was kind of, Home alone, and mm. and that's why I had to go on the north side of of Mount Everest. And then once Mount Everest was done, and and the other challenges continued, I just knew that the the greatest mountain in the world was 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 looming, and mm. there was a calling. And you know, I don't really have an attitude of of why not. It's mm-hmm. it it really you know for me, I just felt that. You know, I do climb with the greatest shepherd in the world and, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, he has given me this incredible gift physically and mentally to be strong. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, you know, I wanted to use that. I felt I wanted to um, try and test it to the to the ultimate. And K2 is the ultimate. Mm, definitely. Could you share with us how you prepared physically for such a demanding expedition? I mean, what sort of preparations go into taking on an extreme and deadly climb like this? Well, just single-handedly for K2 alone, I dedicated two years full-time. I mean, I was training straight up. I was training six hours a day, six days a week, taking one day off. And um, that was made up of a huge amount of endurance, um, whether it was running in the mountains or whether it was on my bike or indeed I was in the sea. I'm a very keen sea swimmer and I would be clocking up a lot of hours um, just going through a repetitive endurance. Um, I did build in um, quite a bit of uh, strength work this time around because I suppose in 2015 I knew that K2 was much, much more challenging and hugely different technically than any other mountain that I'd ever taken on. And purely above 8,000 metres alone, the technical aspect of K2 was 
off the charts mm-hmm. beyond most people's understanding of what it actually took to climb those last sections. So I knew physically that it was going to be a very demanding climb um, and more than just a big slog. Mm-hmm. Um, so strength training became a really important part of my jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Nutrition was key. I wanted to go in this time lighter, uh, and I did. I went in much, much lighter this time than I did in 2015. And I think that's the, uh, that really that really helped on the mountain because I was much lighter uh, and I moved much faster on the mountain, which was critical to me. Mm. Um, and I was stronger. I was able to pull more gear and I was able to take more equipment up. Mm. Um, and for the first time ever in my life, I introduced yoga. Um, I introduced hot yoga in particular. Mm-hmm. And I found it incredible. I found it uh, really improved my uh, edit two elements to it. It really improved my flexibility. Um, you know, the older we were getting, uh, the tighter the muscles were and the joints were, and I found that I was struggling mm-hmm. um, in, in certain in certain parts of my jigsaw puzzle with my preparation. And yoga really fixed it. It kept me injury-free. And and secondly, I suppose it really helped It helped me allow me... I was, I'd done yoga three days a week, and it allowed me to just find an hour a day mm-hmm. uh, for me and I brought that practice into my everyday life. Um, and I just brought yoga in. And, uh, you know, I, I was no good at it at the start. And mm-hmm. I don't pretend to be very good at it yet. But mm-hmm. uh, I found my own level. And I'm continuing to make great gains. And um, I just, it was a great, it was a great uh, product to bring into my everyday routine. And I still use it to this day. Fascinating how yoga can have a, such a, an impact on your preparations. Now, you touched on the equipment Jason and uh, you are sponsored by Great Outdoors who are now sponsoring the Hardest Nails podcast too. How did they help you out when it came to your kit and gear for this expedition as it is obviously a matter of life and death up there on K2? Yeah the, the equipment is, is is very critical it's a very specific um, very specific set of uh, you know tools that are required uh, for K2 because most 8,000 meter mountains require, you know, uh, a lightweight product uh, that's able to be technically sound enough to keep you protected and strong and and uh, warm and durable and dry and all the all those things that are required above 8,000 meters. Because in in a remote environment like K2 or any of those 8,000 meter mountains, you don't have the 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 ability to you know to put a light switch on or dry equipment or you know, anything like that, mm-hmm. anything that we experience in a modern world. So it was really important to me that I had really good gear. And, you know, I had certain parts of the jigsaw puzzle, but I was I was missing quite a few bits. Um, and with improvements year on year with equipment mm-hmm. uh, and advances being made, I, I needed to upgrade my gear. And I reached out to the guys in the great outdoors. And, you know, I was quite nervous because I'm not that, you know, I might be very forward in my sport, but I'm as a, as an individual, I'm quite a private person, and I, I found it quite challenging to reach out to, to a sponsor. And I did reach out to them, and I, I explained to them over the phone what I was planning on doing. And without without a, a single thought, uh, Ken invited me into into Dublin to the office, and I went in to meet them. And the two lads were were incredible. Um, I presented. Uh, I presented what I was planning on doing, and within ten seconds, he says yes, and it was just as fast as that, and it was, it was incredible, and I, it was a game changer for me because 
you know, at, at the outset, I, I needed to get my hands on a lot of technical stuff, in particular sleeping bags that are, you know, hugely technical now and, and lightweight and loads of technical tools and mm. footwear, clothing, um, you know, loads of um, parts of the jigsaw puzzle that is so, so important mm. um, up there. And it was just great, you know, and, and, you know, it was just so humbling to walk out of their office Mm. Uh, that day in the great outdoors and have somebody believing in you mm. because you have this personal self-belief yourself and that's what mo- that's what mo- what's motivating you in endurance sport mm. but when somebody else believes you in you and invests in you and and that's what I've that's what it felt like to me it, it was an investment in me not just in mm. in product but in in me as a person they were investing in me and they were believing in my goals and my dreams and my aspirations and that that uh, that investment and that self belief was incredible, and it was just so powerful to me, and um, it was a motivating factor to be successful on K two. Not only for myself, my country, and my sport, but for my sponsors and their self belief. Yeah, wow, that's uh, wonderful to hear. And Jason, how did you feel you handled the conditions? Now you've got the kit, you've got the equipment, but. Conditions is something that takes a bit more time to get accustomed to, specifically when you're dealing with extremely low temperatures and, of course, acclimatizing to the lack of oxygen and atmospheric pressure. How did you handle that all? This time around, it was great. Um, I, it was just absolutely great. It, was, it worked out really well. As I said, you know, I had a lot of learning done through the years. I'd made mistakes like, like most endurance athletes and I had fallen to my knees and I had to get back up again and rebuild the jigsaw puzzle and all that learning um, you know, was just played its role in 2018. And, you know, for me, I went in lighter, I went stronger, and the preparation was incredible. The equipment that I was using was incredible. Mm. And then, I suppose, for me, on the mountain itself, you know, I, the acclimatization worked. You know, I didn't require, I didn't get an opportunity to do any pre-acclimatization. Mm-hmm. Um, the odd year I would have used a, you know, I would have used the high altitude tent to pre-acclimatize, but on this occasion, I just felt that the expedition was too big and too long um, that I wasn't going to benefit from it. The walk-in alone was seven days, 130 kilometers, pulling gear in to get to base camp alone, and I just knew that the acclimatization itself would be quite natural. And as long as as long as I took a slow and steady approach to the mountain mm-hmm. and trying not to rush it. Um, uh, it would work, and it did. Um, when I got to Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, spent several days up there in rotations, dropped back down again, so we slept high and, sorry, climbed high and slept low. I, I ate very, very well. My hydration was really good this time. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, through the through the endurance cycling, I learned a new product um, in, in a hydration, from a hydration perspective, and I applied it this time, and mm-hmm. it kept me super hydrated without having to drink twice the amount of water that I would normally have to drink mm-hmm. um, and I slept really well you know there was several times that that I had to introduce a sleeping tablet um, just to put me over but it, that also really worked for me and then at higher altitude it didn't require that mm-hmm. because the, the muscle memory was working the body was in a pattern of sleeping and climbing and repeating itself every day um, and then getting back to base camp, I knew that I was, you know, the route was set with camp one, two, and three established. Camp four was going to be put in as we moved, and then uh, the summit, uh, roping and um, getting the the gear up to camp four and putting the putting the the ropes in place was going to happen on the summit push. Mm-hmm. So um, no, I felt really good and really strong, and and um, 
I think as well, just with the weather this time as well, and mm. it played its part. Um, you know, it was as if all my stars had lined up mm. on this one occasion, and it was my turn. Mm. Uh, and K two was, was was good to me. Yeah, definitely. Now, as I mentioned at the start, Jason, I mean, you you, you tragically witnessed a, a close friend of your fall to his death, and and then another climber was killed in an incident on the way down. How did that affect yeah. you psychologically? I mean, did you at any point consider quitting because of what you witnessed? No, never, never considered quitting. Um, that was not an option for me. It never really is an option for me. Um, yeah, I'd been climbing in 2015 with Serge, uh, French-Canadian climber. And, um, you know, you, you build a relationship with people on a mountain. You all come from a, um, a background where... Yeah, there's a reason why we're in K2 and, you know, there's a reason why we're taking on the greatest mountain in the world. And I suppose we've all got, you know, the guys that are there. And it's a very small group of climbers that take on K2. You know, if you can imagine K2 base camp this year alone, mm-hmm. which was the most successful year in history, mm-hmm. and there's only 90 climbers in there. So we're a very small community of climbers that, that take on um, this these vast mountains. And, you do you do befriend people. You do become um, very much in tune with with your neighbour next door or with your climbing partner. And you know to witness somebody fall to their death, it's it's tragic and it's 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 very hurtful. And you know uh, we were up with Camp Two and Surge fell between Camp Two and Camp Three. The rope snapped, the same rope that we were using. And you know a lot of things run through your mind. That could have been me, and uh, but it's not. And he fell 1,000 meters past past my right shoulder, and you know it unnerves you. You know you're double checking your 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 connections. You're double checking your your clipping in. You're you're double checking yourself. You know you're double checking. You know am I safe on the mountain, mentally and physically? And um, I suppose we realise that into the likes of K2, the statistics are stacked against us mm-hmm. um, with a one in four uh, recovery. Um, on the mountain and I suppose that's we all understand that we, we play with the the greatest peril of our life uh, on K2 it's unlike any other sport you know I've done the Ross and I've done Ironman I've done most land based sports at sea level and at any stage whenever things aren't working or when I feel like giving up I can put my hand up a car pulls up or I can stop running and I can turn around and get in and get dry and get home but up there, there's no putting your hand up. Uh, if you decide to back down um, at super high altitude, you're in trouble. Yeah, definitely. Backing down is uh, not an option when you're up there. But back home now, Jason, uh, you have your wife and uh, your children while you were taking on the world's deadliest mountain. Do you think uh, that the risks seem too high when you bring your family into the picture? That's a really great question, you know, because... Not only do you go on expedition, but your whole fraternity, community, and and friendship goes on on expedition, and that's challenging. Mm-hmm. And it's selfish, you know. You know, as a as a high altitude mountaineer and as a long distance endurance athlete, what we tend to do is extremely selfish, you know. And I've openly and publicly talked about that, you know, in order for me to follow my dreams in life, mm-hmm. um, I'm playing with my life. And there's a strong chance that I'm not coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, you're married, you're married to that relationship in sport. And, uh, 
and your family's married to that relationship and sport. And, you know, for me, each time I go, you know, it's like cutting that umbilical cord. Um, when I leave my town, when I leave my community and when I leave my home mm. and I leave my beautiful wife, Sharon, and, and my four wonderful kids, you know, it is cutting that umbilical cord. But for me, I'm just blessed to have a wife that has an understanding of what I do. Mm. And without doubt, Sharon's 50% the success of what I do because without her, I, you know, giving the thumbs up to to me following my dreams in life and taking on these ambitions, um, there's no way that I would be successful. There's no way that I could leave with that conscience um, pulling me back again. And ultimately, I've got to leave with a clear conscience and be focused and determined in what the challenge ahead requires and and, and allows me just to focus on that and nothing else. Mm, absolutely. And I would assume, Jason, that the thoughts of your family they help motivate and drive you forward to reach the next camp, take the next step forward. Are there any other things that run through your mind, though, while you are trying to, you know, just stay alive, never mind attempting to reach the summit? Well, we've, you know, myself and Sharon have a, have a brilliant marriage. I mean, you know, we're 21 years married this year, and we have, I've made a promise to Sharon and to myself, which is probably the strongest promise in the world, is to yourself, mm-hmm. that, you know, if, it's, if I get to a point that, that any expedition or endurance race is not making any sense, whether my health has broke down or, in this case, K2 wasn't working, the mountain wasn't working with us, the weather was against us, or just in general things weren't working, that I have the courage to turn around. Because, you know, that old theory that the mountain's going nowhere, it's always going to be there, is the reality. And you can't really play too much um, on the devil's back door uh, because at some stage it's going to bite you. And even for K2, you know, you know, I have this mental picture in my head that, you know, I was I was living with this really angry dog mm-hmm. and that it would, let, it would let me cuddle up to it when I was at base camp. And, you know, I, I, there's me in my little yellow um, tent, you know, two by two at the bottom of K2. And it would eventually let me pet it and stroke it. Eventually it would let me play with it. And it would grow with the avalanches, it would howl with the winds. Um, but always and always, I felt it was an angry dog that at any stage it could bite me. And that's what it felt like on K2. And I give it the utmost respect. And for me, you know, the physical challenges of K2 are huge. I mean, the technical challenges of climbing House Chimney and the Black Pyramid, um, you know, the the bottleneck, the traverse and up on to the summit on the elevator, as we call it now, mm-hmm. are huge. And these things are, are fine at sea level, but when you put them at 7,500 metres plus in the air, where your oxygen levels are well below 50%, and you're operating you know, at 99% of your physical ability and certainly at 99% of your mental ability, and it's drawn on every single physical and mental and technical ability that you've you've been grinding and you've been honing all these years for well it's 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 huge and that those final two days when I was climbing up through the bottleneck and the serac that sits above you is twice the size of any cathedral mm. uh, if not larger and you know I was below it for for eight hours uh, and then up onto the traverse which is you know this 500 metre 
you know, traverse around the bottom of the bottleneck and Serac and, you know, it's just one foot wide and to your left-hand side, it's a thousand metre drop. And this year, you know, we witnessed the Japanese climber fall to his death, just got his foot wrong at the bottleneck and just, just perished, just dropped right in front of your eyes. And, and, um, it's just hard to witness it, you know, but you just got to really believe in yourself. I mean, you just got to really, I had to really believe in Jason Black and, mm-hmm. and the fact that physically, mentally and technically I was sound enough to climb the mountain. And for me, I wasn't nervous. I mean, it sounds strange, but I was really in my zone. I was so comfortable. I was climbing really, really well. And, mm-hmm. you know, spiritually, I was connected to the mountain. And, you know, in 2008, the first Irish summiter and only Irish summiter before myself, Jerry McDonald lost his life on K2. Mm. And um, when he was trying to save another team, a Taiwanese team that got into bother, or a Korean team, sorry, that got into bother, uh, when other members of his team chose to pass, he didn't. And he chose to stop and, and try to save them. And unfortunately, he got hit with an avalanche and lost his life. But for me, I reached out to Jerry and, you know, as another Irishman. You know, I spiritually reached out to him and asked him to keep me safe and to guide my torch, and he did. I felt him very powerfully with me on the mountain. And Mm. again, when I stood on the summit, that strength was incredible. Um, The pride was incredible. Standing there as as an Irishman with the tricolour in my my hand, you know, and all those years of training, and all those years of commitment had all come to its fruition. Here it was, standing on the greatest summit on the world. And it was so powerful. It was so emotional. And it was so, it was so humbling. Mm. You know, it was a different experience to an Ironman. It was a different experience to possibly all the other mountains that I've ever stood on. Mm. You know, the sense of, the sense of success was huge, but it wasn't a chest beating experience for me. It was just, it was just the satisfaction of, of being able to survive, to get to the top. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I knew I had a, I had the, probably the biggest journey ahead of me, which was to get down. I was only halfway there, mm. and I knew that the vast majority of people that died on K two all died on the way down. And that's probably where the biggest challenge lies, not on the way up, but on the way back down. Well, you mentioned reaching the summit there, uh, Jason, 22nd of July, 3 a.m. Irish time. You stood on the top. You had done half the job, as you mentioned. Then you got to get back down. But running through your mind, I'm sure, was the fact that uh, you were the second Irishman to, to reach the summit of K2 and successfully descend in the end. Because the first Irishman was Noel Hanna, who reached the top literally just hours before you did. Does that annoy you at all, or or does the experience mean more than just that? No, uh, for me, just, you know, after climbing K2 and knowing what it took to get there, I was just on my own personal journey, and I'm just, I'm humbled to be having this conversation with you, because uh, I just know what K2 can do, and, you know, for me, just the the success of getting home was so important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, The trophies uh, were really irrelevant. Um, I suppose we do all want the first, but at the end of the day, I am the first Irish Republican mm-hmm. to get up there. And, um, you know, just I knew that, you know, I, I, I've, I've known Noel for, for a long number of years as a mountaineer. He's an extremely proficient and professional mountaineer. I have so much respect for Noel. And I knew that he was going to have a, a job in his hands to get up there and get it successfully done. Mm-hmm. Myself and 
and Noel shared the success of his summit. Uh, I was at Camp 4 when he returned, and and that's important to me. You know, I think, you know, as Irish mountaineers or as Irish sports people, or indeed, indeed as as global sports people, we should celebrate each other's successes mm-hmm. because within those successes is massive, massive amount of contri- contribution and training and focus, dedication, commitment, and and as he spoke earlier on, just you know that sacrifice of of putting your life on the line. So mm-hmm. you know we I bask in everybody else's success, including my own. So for me to get there. Uh, and my time was important, but more importantly, to get home was critical to me. Mm. Uh, the bonus was to get to the top, but it was mandatory to get home. Mm. And, you know, when I stood there on the summit, I had this incredible feeling that ran through my, my veins, knowing that Jared had had got there, the tricolour had got there, but it had never returned to Irish shores. Mm. And I just had this very overwhelming sense of of responsibility come through my body and I just knew that you know when I held that tricolour above my head I just knew that I had to get it home mm-hmm. and that it was it was so important and you know as a, as a mountaineer you're, when you're climbing you're climbing towards something and you're very focused on that prize mm-hmm. but at the same time when you turn your back on it you're, you're climbing to for me it was climbing towards my family mm-hmm. and climbing towards my home and you know that fear of not getting home became very overwhelming mm-hmm. uh, to the point that it unnerved me on the way down again and it, it, um, I didn't move as well on the mountain as I would like to have moved. There's several hours that I was, you know, I was stiff and lethargic and I wasn't flowing the way I was on the way up. Mm-hmm. And I had to stop and, and and tell myself that, Jason, it's fine. You know, you're you're technically sound enough, strong enough and physically well enough to be on this mountain mm. and you just got to believe in your own self-belief and your own, you know, your own skill as a young scout growing up in Donegal and all those years of training to get to this moment in time. And when I did that, I came back to myself again and I felt very smooth in the mountain and it took us a long time to get back to Camp 2. Mm. It took us a full day's retreat um, and Camp 2 was the critical point because Camp 4 and Camp 3 is where all the big avalanches are. It's where the most amount of mountaineers were perished in their, on their descent. And for me, I knew that Camp 4, staying at Camp 4 wasn't optional. Mm. Staying at Camp 3 was definitely not optional. It was the most dangerous camp on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And getting to Camp 2 was the promise that I'd made to Sharon and to myself. Mm. And that that was the critical phone call, not the one on the summit, mm. the one from Camp 2 to say that I'm safely down. Wow, unbelievable. Well, you have been speaking about uh, Joe McDonald uh, quite a bit. I want to know how important was it for you to honour his legacy from 10 years ago? Oh, it was really important for me because, you know, I am a very proud Irish man. And, you know, Jared went there with the same ambition as me in 2008. And I suppose unconsciously I've been following Jared McDonald's footsteps, mm. not knowing that he had taken the same path to K2 that I had. And, um, when I got out there in 2015, I had this overwhelming feeling that this one Irishman had perished on the mountain and had, you know, that basically had, you know, had put his own life before others and paid the ultimate sacrifice never to return to his family or his country mm-hmm. and chose to save another group of members. Um and, you know, when I got to 
K2 base camp, I went over to the memorial and there was a tin plate there that his expedition had had punched his name and the date of birth and unfortunately the date that he had died on the 2nd of August 2008. And I had the tricolour in my hand and I wrapped it around that plate and you know, I just wanted him to believe and, and to feel that he had the support of another Irishman on the mountain and vice versa, that I had his support. And I'd never met Jared McDonald. I had I had read his book and I had I'd watched the film uh, the summit on K two that was that was um directed on Jer's life and death on K two. And you know, I just felt that, you know, walking away in two thousand and fifteen that we need, he needed to you know, that I feel felt that me as a mountaineer and and the the country of Ireland needed to acknowledge what he had done and um he was a leading knight as an Irish mountaineer and this year I brought a plaque back to, to K2 and properly erected a plaque at base camp um, to acknowledge Jeremy McDonald's endeavours and sacrifices. And I had the support of his family. I had gone down to his mum, Gertie, and his brother, JJ, and sister Denise, and brother-in-law, Damien, and I had spent quite a bit of time with the family. And, you know, I'd never met these people before, but they invited me down, and I got an opportunity to speak about my K2 and and what it meant to me, and and we spoke about Jer, and we laughed and we cried uh, about his expedition and the fact that he never came home and that void was never filled for them, and they never recovered a body. And in um, leaving that day in Limerick, heading back to Donegal, Gertie asked me to come out to to a small room that they had uh, kept all Jer's climbing equipment in. And, and uh, she gave me some of Jair's climbing equipment to take back to K2 for me to use. And it was so powerful for me, you know, I mean, mm. to have Jair McDonald's Jumar in my hand. And, you know, I felt a real connection with Jair. And, and uh, you know, the family, as, t- as tough as it was for them, gave me their full support and, and rode behind my return to K2. And, and in a weird way, understood why I was going back and, you know, and and what it meant to me. And, because Jared himself, several years before uh, 2008, had got injured in K2 with a head strike mm-hmm. and um, nearly lost his life. And and again, he decided to return to K2 three years later, you know, and followed the same natural footsteps as... I was following exactly the same natural footsteps as Jared McDonald unconsciously, you know, and it was mad, you know, it was crazy and just... I just knew that, uh, you know, 2018 was my last time to be there. And, you know, as a as a very proud Irishman, I wanted to acknowledge Jared McDonald's endeavours and what he had accomplished mm-hmm. and to be the first Irish summoner, but unfortunately not the mm-hmm. survivor. And for me to be the first Republican Irish survivor uh, meant a lot. Mm-hmm. And to return that tricolour to Irish shores was mandatory for me. Mm. Well, you certainly did honour his legacy by uh, accomplishing what you did, Jason. Now, I read that in January this year, so not that long before you took on K2, you said that the toughest climb, both mentally and physically, of your career was the north face of Mount Everest in 2013. Has that now changed after what you endured on K2? Absolutely. I have the utmost respect for Mount Everest is stands to be the highest mountain in the world, and, 
and it was and and you know I chose to do Mount Everest on the north face because for me I just you know I just really wanted the, the purest climb I'm I'm a purest climber I'm not somebody that signs up to um you know to being babysat on a mountain mm-hmm. for the want of a word mm-hmm. um but for me I just really wanted to take on the challenge of climbing the mountain mm-hmm. in my own terms um and that's what I got with Mount Everest in 2013 and it was incredible mm-hmm. it was hard and uh it was brutal uh physically and mentally but K2 by a long shot takes number one spot I now know why there is only 300 I don't know what the exact number is now but 350 360 mountaineers in the world have got there mm-hmm. and I know now why because beyond the Black Pyramid is a whole different world mm-hmm. and it's not the big long slug of an 8000 metre mountain mm-hmm. the technical aspect of climbing K2 was phenomenal the bottle leg for me was so treacherous so technical requiring every single piece of mountaineering skill that was in my body to get up it and you know to be right on the wire on the traverse and again another 500 meter vertical ascent on sheet ice black sheet ice where your crampons and your ice axis and your GMR is your only point of contact and knowing that at any moment in time if you can't commit wholeheartedly to this mountain and technically be sound enough on the mountain you're going to fall and you're going to you're going to die. And, you know, for me, you know, I never really had that that complete experience on any other mountain. Um, there was always a an element of of um, safety. Um, but on K2, the exposure was phenomenal, not only just from the technical climb, but just what hung above you. Mm. I mean, uh, if anything went above, uh, and that's what makes K2 different to anything else, even in the lower camps, the gradient, you know, ramped up at 45% from ABC to Camp 1, same right through to Camp 2, Camp 3 and Camp 4. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, if anything goes above, uh, you're in the firing line below. And um, and that's what makes it different. Um, the exposure on K2 is, is huge. The technical ability to climb it mm-hmm. is huge. And it's all done at 8,000 metres with a very reduced amount of oxygen, if any at all. Well, lastly, Jason, this unbelievable accomplishment will probably take a few more weeks and months to properly sink in. In the meantime, what's the next challenge or adventure that uh, you are going on? And is there something you are perhaps considering pursuing long-term which uh, would top K2? I've been blessed to date to have had the opportunity to experience uh, what I've done uh, meet the people involved, experience the cultures as m- in my travels around the world. And, you know, just, uh, you know, I've been on this incredible journey in my own life um, from the gutter to the summit of the greatest mountain in the world. Um, and the gutter being that low uh, with being a very depressed person through bullying and, and death and ultimately you know, through self-belief, dedication, commitment, focus, and and just believing in Jason Black, you know, I was able to overcome and endure and succeed Mm. and stand there on that summit. And for me, it really wasn't the summit of the world. For me, it was the summit of my life. And in reflection, you know, for me, I've, I've spent a huge amount of time in schools working with young kids, 
uh, in disadvantaged areas in Ireland and beyond. And for me, I think it's the greatest summit that I'll ever stand on as a classroom. Um, for me, being able to share my story, uh, good, bad and different, being able to share it honestly as a very ordinary person that comes from a very ordinary home um, that takes on extraordinary challenges um, and letting them hear the story and believe the story that they can do the same in their own life mm. is critical to me. Um, and that's where my next journey is, mm. is to... Uh, uh, the word inspire is a word that doesn't really sit very well with me, but it's to, it's to, it's to empower young kids not to be afraid of life. It's to empower them to be, have the ability to set goals and set them high mm. and work hard and believe in themselves and dedicate themselves to be incredible mm. and be incredible human beings and to remove themselves from any negative energy in life mm. and, uh, and just drive on and just be the most incredible human being that they can be because this journey is such a short journey in life. It's such a short life and, and it's worth living. Powerful words to end it off right there. Jason, not only are you a remarkable global endurance athlete, but you are also so passionate about your country and what you do, and we absolutely love that. Congratulations once again for making it through hell and back on K2, and uh, we cannot wait to see what you're up to next. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hard as Nails podcast. Thank you so much. And just before we leave it, I'd love to say a big thank you to the people of Ireland and beyond, because... Um, the incredible messages of support that I received was mind-blowing. People's honesty was incredible uh, and they wore their heart in their sleeve and that energy is what helped carry me to the summit of the greatest mountain in the world, K2.